I started meeting with some of the higher-ups in Raleigh on reentry. I talked about reentry doesn't start a year, six months when an individual is going to be released from prison. Reentry starts the moment the individual enters prison. Well, it didn't go over too well because they felt, oh, Bessie, you're just saying that because your son is in prison. And I said, exactly. But then years later, they came back and that's all you could hear, reentry, reentry, reentry. So I came back around and they wanted to have a conversation with Bessie on reentry. Welcome to the 98% Life After Prison, a podcast about the 98% of incarcerated people in North Carolina who will eventually be released back into their communities. In our last show, we met Antoine Blake, who at the time was a resident at Straight Talk Support Group Transition House in Durham. Today, we're going to hear from Bessie Elmore, the director of STSG, and someone who is well acquainted with the complicated challenges people face after being released from prison. You know, Bessie first became interested in the issues surrounding reentry after her own son, William, received a life sentence. I think that was in 1992. For many years, she ran a support group for the loved ones of incarcerated people. Then in 2017, Bessie took over a federal transition house in Durham that had lost its funding. Soon after, Nicole Sullivan, then the Director of Reentry Programs and Services for the State Department of Public Safety, approached her about housing people who are transitioning from prison with mental health issues. Let's listen to Bessie describe the contract that she has with the state and hear her perspective on the relationship between incarceration and mental health. In 2017, you were awarded a contract with the state from Central Prison. Can you tell me just a little bit about that contract that you have with the state? Uh, Yes. How that came about is I took some NAMI classes Uh, NAMI is National Association on Mental Illness. And I took the classes family to family. I later became a facilitator to do the classes. And I was received this award. And somehow um, Nicole Sullivan found out about NAMI. And she asked me, what is NAMI? And I was telling her. And she was like, oh. Um, so you have a background in mental illness? And I said, yeah. And they had another discussion and they came over to the house to look at the house. And, um, then they said, well, okay, we want to do a pilot program. So I said, all right, pilot program that we will, we want to have 10 beds in your house slated just for people with mental illness. And I said, okay. And we were awarded that contract to house the 10 men. So it is for people who with mental health challenges? Mental health, substance abuse, trauma, anything surrounding a mental health issue, those are the 
men that we get at our house. What do you see as the, the really the necessary ingredients to running a reentry house? In order to run a successful transitional house, in my opinion, staffing is of the utmost importance. Training is necessary because everyone um, has not had training working with mental health people. Um, so that's very important. So that was one of the main factors. I can't speak on other houses because I don't know what they do. I only know about our house and the people that come, the men that come to our house. Is everyone at your house um, have mental health challenges, or do you also have men from a, a more general prison population? In order for me to answer that question based on my educational and personal background, anyone that's been in prison for any length of time, and that's including jail, has been traumatized. So trauma is under that umbrella of mental health. So the majority of the people that come to our house have been affected in some way by a mental illness. Does the state see it that way as well? I don't know how they see it. But like I said, in all the years that I've worked in this arena and my educational background, that's a fact. So in your experience, what are the most pressing needs? And I go back to housing again. So those are the most pressing needs. The men that come to our house, they have burned so many bridges with their families. And that need to reconnect them with their family is very important. And in taking on that responsibility of having to work with that individual to connect back with their families, it's extremely hard. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And the reason why we start there is because of the housing piece. Housing is very expensive. And even if you get a job making $30 an hour, your criminal background can stop you from getting a place to live. And that's very hard. It is very hard. And for people who many times they're not making that kind of money, and to save money is just crazy hard. Yes, it is. We've talked about housing. What are the most personal challenges that people who are justice involved have? What are the kind of challenges that justice involved people have who are trying to reintegrate into society? The most difficult challenges that they may have, which I've seen, is trusting people to do exactly what you say you're going to do. And when you can't do it, respect them enough to let them know, we can't do this. When an individual comes home from prison, they've been so used to being called by their number, their opus number. So at our house, we call them by their last name, Mr. John Doe, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, 
It's a level of respect. We don't call them by their first name. And that way they feel that, oh, okay, they respect me. And then it comes to the trust part. So that's very important. Do you have a deadline when people have to leave the house? How long are people allowed to stay at um, Straight Talk Support Group Transition House? Yes, when the men come to our house and we discuss the length of stay, for the state, they'll pay up to 90 days. I can extend it to 30 more days if that individual is close to getting a job, getting housing, getting the Social Security or disability, or we're working on connecting them back with their families. I can extend 30 days. Past that, it becomes a challenge. I spoke to one gentleman who is at at the house who is disabled, but he cannot, and he's close to his family, but he cannot live with his family because they're in public housing. Yes. That's another issue. Um, Having a, a loved one that's been incarcerated and you, per se, are living in public housing, your that individual's felony charges will not allow them to live with their mother, grandmother, cousin, so on and so forth. Not in public housing, no. Can you talk about how addiction complicates that process of reintegration? Addiction is a disease and the medical field is now addressing it as a disease. Prior to that, it was treated in a completely, totally different arena. So when a person comes to our house, we, my staff and myself, we understand and work with that person on the disease and connect them with NAAA, uh, behavioral care, different organizations, and um, in the mental health field to work with them and to treat that addiction as a disease because that's exactly what it is. In my experience with the reentry house in Hillsboro, the one difficult thing I've seen is guys who get clean in prison, they get out, and they don't understand that they have a disease. They just think if they behave right and maybe pray enough, that they will be able to conquer it. And they are not willing to go to NA or AA. How do you deal with that? When the guys come to our, come to our house, they go through an orientation period. Before that even happens, before anyone can come to our house, there's an interview process. I conduct that interview. And there's several questions that I ask. And it's not in any type of order. And then I let the individual ask me questions. And then we sum it up with this. I let them know exactly what they're going to be entering into. That every class that we have at our house is a must you must attend. And I read them the list of classes. And all the time they agree. And when they come in for that orientation, they sign 
off that says, I agree to attend NAAA. I tend to go to all of peer-to-peer support group. And when they say, oh, I don't want to go, we bring out the paper and we say, here, you signed that you agreed because that's based on a condition for you to stay at our house. What are the supports that you offer at STSG? The support group consists of two things. Excuse me. We talk about family. We talk about your addiction. When did it start? What are some of the red flags and how we can overcome some of these small uh, challenges? Because if we start small, then maybe we can get to the big uh, challenges. Now, understand that we're not therapists. We're not a clinician. And we don't want to go too far to trigger someone to fall back into. So there's a limit. And not everybody at our house is trained in that field. I'm trained to be a counselor. We have the peer-to-peer. So I work closely with the guys at our house that are struggling. And we don't put you out if you go out and use. That's not what... You asked me not too long ago about what STSG stands for. It stands for serving to see greatness. So that's what we try to do. Are we successful? No, no one's 100%. We do our best. I believe in second chances, sometimes three chances, maybe four. But then you have to sign another paper saying, I'm going to go to detox. This is what I'm going to do. And then we put the responsibility back on the individual. Here's what you signed. This is what you agreed to. Responsibility is back. It's not what STSG said. No, 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 no. Here it is. You signed it. You mentioned peer support. Yes. How important is that um, lived experience in being able to relate to these guys? It's very important. I'll quote Stephen Covey, seek first to understand, then to be understood. When you have someone who's walked in those shoes, not exactly your shoes, but have walked in shoes, gone down the road that you've gone down, then you can relate. And the other individual can relate to that person. And it makes it a little easier to converse with. The peer can see, oh, no, we need to go a little bit deeper because you're holding back. And the person knows it's like, okay, they can peep my whole card. So I'm going to have to fess up if I really want to achieve my goal, heal, then I need to really come real or it's just a waste of everybody's time. We're now going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn why Bessie chose to devote her life to reentry long after her son was released from prison. Stay tuned.
you think it is that some people are are very successful and are able to reintegrate while others just don't seem to be able to find that way forward and end up back in prison? Wow, that's another loaded question. It has to be up to the individual. And I can only imagine the struggle that it is for a person who has abused substance for a very long time because it has affected their brain. It has altered so much stuff about their bodies. And if you've if an individual has abused substance for a long time, the body has gotten used to this substance. And now you're you're telling the body, you know what, we're gonna eat. And the body say, oh, wait a minute. You've been giving me this every day for 10 years, and now you wanna take it away from me? I don't think so. So it's weaning that person off. But that desire for that substance can drive a person deeper into their substance. And then their heart takes on their kidneys, their liver, everything, their eyes. It affects their bodies. And sometimes, (laughs) sometimes that's the reason why people don't want to quit because they know what's going to happen to them. It's going to be very painful. Painful, and it could cause their... They're deaf, and I'm speaking from personal experience because I've had family members who have abused substance and didn't want to stop because they knew what could happen to them. What I'm hearing from you is that most of the people that you work with at STSG have a history or have current substance use problem, uh, challenges. You would be correct by saying most of the people that come to our house have a multitude of challenges, substance, substance abuse, alcohol, and coupled with mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, and went undiagnosed, went into prison, received the diagnoses, was put on medication, and the medication could have been too high, too low. It's just a multitude of things that can go wrong. I'm not saying that the prisons do something wrong, but it's a multitude of things that go wrong. It's like you may be on a high blood pressure medication with 10 milligrams, and then something happens, and now they have to up up your milligrams, then it can go back down. So it's always a balancing act, and more so with people who are on medication for bipolar or schizophrenia or any of the millions of other diagnoses out there with different titles on mental health. Why did you choose this work? I think the work chose me because my background is in accounting. (laughs) But when I came to North Carolina and I got involved with domestic violence and my supervisor suggested, oh, Bessie, you're really good at this. You should go back to school. And I was like, "Eh." 
but I had the time on my hands because my supervisor allowed me to take classes at work and dealing with my son's situation. The work chose me. Simple as that. I didn't choose it. It chose me. Um, We've mentioned your son. Will spent 24 years in prison? 24 and a half. (laughs) 24 and a half. And I'm sure you know it down to the day. Just briefly, can you just talk about how his incarceration changed your life? Oh, gee. (laughs) Or let's just say, what was your response to his being incarcerated? Oh, my. Prior to my son being incarcerated, I felt, well, if you you must have done something. You're in prison. And um, that goes to show you never judge, judge people by them being in prison or out of prison. The second part of it is I was very angry. I spent five years being angry, and it didn't serve me. But then I turned that anger around, and I decided to, okay, let's see how I'm going to deal with this and how we're going to work to get him out of this situation. And he started the support group before I really started it because he would call me or write me and say, hey, Ma, there's a guy in here that needs this or needs a pair of sneakers or a, a book. And I was like, I'm doing this for you, and you want me to help somebody else. He was like, come on, Ma, help the guy out. And everything started to change. When you can step out of yourself and help someone else, everything changes. And that's what started to happen. I started meeting people uh, that worked in um, Raleigh, and I started back going to those roundtable meetings, and I started meeting more people, and I started helping people, and that's what happened. And here you are. And here I am. Um, Just one more question. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you, or anything else you'd like to say about reentry? I like to say that reentry is so important for people, the state, the federal government, our mayors, our sheriff's office, everyone, to look at what's going on with these prisons and pay attention. Like I said not too long ago, I could care less about people that were in prison until it affected me. And I feel ashamed now about that. Uh, But I'm not doing this work out of guilt. I'm doing this work because I love what I do. I love to see people transform their lives. And you meet some amazing people along the way. You do. You do. And the best feeling is when someone comes back and says, thank you, Miss Elmore. This house saved my life. This house helped me to connect back to my family. Then I say, okay, it was worth it. Because there's no money that you could pay for. Thank you, Miss Elmore. This house helped me immensely.
Bessie's interview, I found it to be very enlightening. She really delved into why, to what it took to open a transition house and how it really is geared toward um, fixing the trauma of those who were incarcerated. A lot of times you don't realize how much trauma has impacted your life during incarceration. For example, those who were locked up in solitary confinement, you may find them having a lot of jittery issues and social anxieties. Um, luckily, the transition house will help them work through those issues and get them the necessary help that they need. And that's just one example of one thing that the transition house can do. Also, Housing can be an issue for those that are recently released and finding um, job opportunities. This transition house kind of gives them a break to set them up with the resources that they need and the people in place to help them achieve what they need to be successful in society. And I think Bessie is very dedicated to working with people. She put her heart is in it completely. And you can really hear that when she talks about it. And, um, even though Will actually got released from prison in the end of 2015, but Bessie has just kept going. And it was even after he was released that she opened the transition house. And Will got out because he was awarded what is called a MAP. And that is a special parole agreement with the state. And he was released really on good behavior. And he's doing really amazing work. So in our next episode, we'll find out about that work and find out what Will is doing to support the people through the process of reintegrating back into society after years of incarceration. So join us next time for another episode of the 98% Life After Prison. See you next time.